The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola America, a Tier 1 manufacturer of LED lights and solar modules with a 10-year track record in the industry. The company is a partner of top project developers in North America looking to maximize their return on investments. To learn more about Renasola's offerings and to become a partner yourself, visit renasola.us. For the week of August 20th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. This week, we're going to have a conversation with independent Maine Senator Angus King about an innovative energy bill he recently introduced. We'll also talk about the politics of energy in Congress and about how to frame clean energy in a bipartisan way. Then we'll take a look at the booming Latin American solar market. And finally, we'll discuss the politics of race surrounding President Obama's landmark climate rule. I'm joined by Catherine Hamilton, who's been kind enough to take some time from her, from her vacation to be with us. Uh, you're up in Craftsbury, Vermont, right? Yes, Craftsbury Common, where Sterling College is located in the Northeast Kingdom. It is absolutely breathtaking here. Oh, I love that. It's making me homesick thinking about you up there. <laughs> uh, you know, I, as listeners know, I grew up in New Hampshire and just loved that area and spent so much time in northern Vermont. And I almost went to Sterling College, actually. Um, well, I'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of the show, but yeah, it's a great place. And you were traveling around Vermont today looking at some wind farms? I was. I was just at the, um, what was First Wind, but now Sun Edison's uh, Sheffield Wind Farm, which is beautiful also. So Jigger could not be with us due to travel conflicts this week, but we have a fill-in host who has an equal amount of wit and candor. It is Adam James, a senior solar analyst at GTM Research, who was uh, just on the show a few weeks ago talking about the global solar market. Welcome back to the show, sir. How does it feel to be sitting in the driver's seat this week? Feels good. Feels good. I'm happy to be here. I'll do my best to uh, to fill Jigger's shoes. Well, let's introduce our guest, Senator Angus King. Senator King is an independent from Maine who has been in office since 2013. He was also Maine's governor from 1995 to 2003, and before that had nearly three decades of experience in the energy industry, working on wind efficiency, hydro, and biomass projects in, in different ways. He joins us from Georgetown, Maine today. Uh, Senator King, welcome to the Energy Gang. A real pleasure having you on the show. Stephen, great to be with you. I've heard you before, and I'm delighted to be a guest, I think. I'll wait and see how the question goes. <laughs> Indeed, you can tell me afterward. But, but we could we yeah. should start off by hearing more about your your career in energy, which is quite extensive. Um, how did your your earlier work, your private sector work, influence the way you feel about these issues today in politics? Well, I think it, it, I don't know if it influences the right word, but certainly the, the experience that I've had uh, informs my work. Uh, I, I started uh, my first uh, PURPA-based hydro project was, I think, one megawatt uh, in 1983. I was a, a small-town lawyer in Maine, had a client that was doing PURPA projects around New England, and in 1983, uh, I decided I was tired of filling out timesheets every day and uh, joined, the, joined the client, the, the small uh, hydro development company. And uh, we did hydro and then later in the mid-80s did a, a pretty substantial biomass plant 
uh, up in Maine uh, that burnt uh, wood waste and uh, sawdust and, you know, bark and that kind of thing. Uh, and then uh, left that company in the late 80s and started my own company doing large-scale energy conservation at uh, things like uh, factories and hospitals and colleges, uh, large projects all over uh, Maine under a program established by the Maine PUCs, where basically we sold uh, savings to the utility uh, just as if it were power, only it was at a lower cost. Um, uh, it was based on Amory Lovin's theory that uh, saving energy is cheaper than generating energy. Um, and then I sold that company, served eight years as governor, and then uh, in about, I think it was 2006, 2007, uh, got involved in wind power and uh, worked uh, as a partner with a group of others that developed a, a 50 megawatt uh, wind project in western Maine uh, that's now online and and uh, uh, doing very well, I understand, although when I ran for the Senate in 2012, it was about a year after that project went online, uh, I sold all my interest in that, uh, in, in the, the wind power business. So anyway, uh, a lot of background uh, principally in renewables, uh, also in conservation. So uh, when I was appointed to the Energy Committee this year, it was sort of natural that I would take an interest in, the, in these issues, but then ended up getting very interested in distributed generation, which really wasn't something I'd had any experience with, but I think that's really uh, where, the, where the future is. Absolutely, and, and that's where some of the conflicts are emerging today. And since you know, you, you've seen how dramatically these technologies have evolved over time, and, um, and that brings us to the bill that you crafted and introduced a few months back, dealing with some of the issues that we're seeing in states around the country. It's called the Free Market Energy Act of 2015. We discussed this bill on a previous show, but I'll just remind listeners what it is. In essence, it would uh, require states to create standard interconnection laws for distributed energy resources. It would not create a specific technology mandate. It's like a renewable energy standard would, like we've seen in, in like 29 states. Rather, it would put in place laws allowing distributed systems to easily connect to the grid and to develop dynamic rates to compensate those systems in a way that's fair to consumers and utilities. So that could really vary based on the state. Why don't you walk us through exactly what this legislation is intended to do? And I guess just as importantly, why you framed it in this way? Well, uh, basically, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, we talked about when I got started in this business. I think in the early 80s, solar was something like $70 a watt installed. It's now about uh, 350, and it can be as low as 250 in some places, and 550 in others. But in other words, an absolutely com dramatic reduction in price. And that's really the news here: is that uh, the, the solar industry is poised to uh, just explode because of the, the lowering of the price. It's it's a it's a matter of just straight straight up economics, uh, and solar is now competitive uh, with pretty much any other. Uh, energy source. So, uh, and as you know, as you alluded to, uh, this is causing conflict and it's causing disruption. It's a classic disruptive technology where, you know, for a hundred years, the energy system has been a very clear, simple uh, model where you have large central generating plant, a bunch of wires and a house and, and it, the flow is all in one direction. And it was pretty straightforward. You pay for your energy and the distribution cost and that's it. 
now uh, with with solar technology and in addition to uh, things like demand response and uh, other self-generation batteries, ability to peak shave, all of those things has really fundamentally changed that relationship. Not surprisingly, some uh, utilities have adjusted to this and are looking at very creative ways to partner with their uh, consumers, just like they used to partner with power plants, and uh, uh, establish a model that works for everybody, including themselves. Others are are fighting it uh, and trying to throw up barriers like arbitrary interconnection fees, slow uh, delayed interconnections, uh, uh, fees, uh, m- monthly fees that basically render the, the, the if it's solar, uh, render it uneconomic. And what the bill was designed to do was, A, take account of reality, uh, that this is happening and this is the future. Uh, it's going to happen whether we or the utilities or anybody else likes it or not. It, it's, it's just, it's just uh, uh, absolute, uh, absolutely clear that this is where the, the future is going and, and people are going to demand control of their own uh, energy situation. So the bill was essentially to establish a right to interconnect and that the, and that the uh, interconnection fees should be, quote, just and reasonable, which is a well-known standard in the utility field, uh, but would uh, require PUCs to do a more subtle analysis uh, than simply net metering or allowing a kind of uh, one-size-fits-all penalty charge uh, in order to allow this technology to develop. Uh, so uh, lots more to talk about, but that's the that's the basic outline was to not to tell PUCs what the rate should be or how to, how to, how to set it, but simply to say that you've got to go through a process uh, to establish a just and reasonable rate, which takes into account not only the cost to the grid uh, of, of being there as the backup, as the battery, and also supplying the, the power, but also the benefits to the grid. Uh, which can accrue from distributed energy, like uh, reliability, peak shaving, uh, and the like. So it's, it would be a, a more subtle analysis than has gone on in the past, but a more realistic one that would be fair to individual homeowners, but also to the other customers of the grid to be sure they're not paying a, a kind of subsidy of people who have uh, solar, for example, on their roof. So that was the purpose of the bill. Uh, uh, we did not get the uh, all the provisions that we wanted into the Lisa Murkowski's comprehensive energy bill that we voted out of committee just a few weeks ago, but we did get some pieces in uh, requiring some studies from the Department of Energy and some guidance uh, to PUCs. So we, we think we made progress uh, given the political reality. Senator King, I I particularly like at the just the first part of the bill, even setting the tone for what is a distributed energy resource and defining it as a resource technology or service interconnected to the grid that generates, manages, or reduces energy use. So we're putting the consumer and the demand side in the position of serving as a resource in the same way that traditional generation serves as a resource. And my sense is that while a lot of these decisions are made at the state level, you're setting the tone and helping to lower the risk perceived risk from regulators and utilities that this is actually a pro-consumer 
policy is really important for you to do. And I'm, I'm really excited that you've been able to define distributed generation in a way that really, you know, um, really envelops this, this idea of the consumer also being a resource. Well, and, and that's, you know, interesting. It was really fascinating when we put this bill out. We got a lot of interest in the trade press. And one of the first people we heard from was a woman named Debbie Dooley from Georgia, who's a leader of the Tea Party in Georgia, uh, who's taken on this issue. And she views it as a, as a Tea Party personal sovereignty issue, that this is, this is people, you know, have, have a right to do this. And, uh, you know, the Tea Party is usually thought of as uh, fighting against the government intrusion. But in, in their case, they're, they're thinking about uh, the, the utility being somebody that's trying to uh, stifle the ability of people to to make their own uh, make their own energy. So you, you hit it. I mean that's that's what this is all about. And, and as I said, and what I've argued to my colleagues is, look, guys, this is happening. Uh, the only question is whether it's going to be World War Three in every PUC in the country, or whether we provide some guidance so that it happens in a in a more orderly and and expeditious way. And uh, that was really the purpose of of, of introducing the bill. That reminds me of an anecdote. When you uh, initially released the bill, I had a good friend who called me up who's a very conservative energy economist who uh, is extremely opposed to any sort of government mandate um, and said, wow, I really like this. Like, I really want to dig into this more. And it, it, it definitely appealed to him. And I heard that from a variety of people across the political spectrum, that this was something that didn't put out any specific technology mandate, but used existing rules to try to get people to think about integrating distributed energy that's already coming down the pike in a way that's fair to all parties. And so uh, you heard from the Green Tea Party as well, and I heard from people who are very conservative who really like this idea as well. Well, the people who don't necessarily like it are the utilities, and I perhaps shouldn't use that term as a catch-all because there are some, as I mentioned, who uh, are looking at this in a, in a, they're, they're saying, well, you know, maybe we just got to modify our business model and there's a way, there's a role for us here. Uh, but a lot have basically uh, said, no, no, this is no good and we can't have it. And uh, uh, that's diminished my ability to generate political support. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I think, I, we had a hearing, and, and we had people from Edison Electric and, and some of the other utilities, and I looked at them, and I said, look, you guys have got to figure this out because you're in a race with batteries. If you don't work with homeowners and find a way to uh, work with this uh, in, in a business model that makes sense for you, people eventually are going to just put batteries in their basements and cut the wires, and you're going to lose a customer altogether. Uh, and I think that's really what's going on here. And the utilities that figure that out are going to be the ones that are going to succeed and prosper. But it is it is a fundamental disruption in the in the hundred year old business model, which obviously isn't going to change overnight. Yeah, that's and you know one kind of question that I had for you, Senator, and thanks for coming on the show, um, was something that you mentioned in the kind of description of why this kind of a bill is necessary, which is, you know, the net metering often can be kind of a blunt instrument and in that we have to find a process by which we can compensate distributed generation in a just and reasonable way. And in the conversations that have already kind of happened around uh, how to value solar, one problem that often pops up is that the process for setting that compensation winds up being kind of, you know, back room and, and often uh, favoring 
people who are already incumbents. I guess I'm wondering if there's anything that can be done uh, in order to ensure that that compensation is actually being set in a fair way, because it seems like the legislation will will prompt those conversations and it gives some guidelines for those conversations, but ultimately it kind of defers to the states and to the kind of entities already in the field to make those determinations. Well, we're uh, we're trying to work. I mean, part of what uh, we got into the energy bill, the comprehensive energy bill that's coming out, is a some studies. And I know studies often people say, "Well, we don't need uh, you know studies don't really do it. You need laws." But uh, we got a couple of relevant provisions. One is that it requires regional transmission organizations to report to FERC on the actual deployment and barriers. In, in their jurisdiction. So that's a, that's a data set that should come in. And so we'll know really what's going on out there, both for distributed energy and microgrids. And then uh, we also got a DOE study on net metering, which will be publicly available and we hope will be a source of information for the states when they're looking at these cases. And, and the Department of Energy, as part of this provision, would, would publish guidance for the work done by the state. So it's it's not mandatory. I mean, you know, the legislation is a is a process of compromise, and, and we, we pushed as hard as we could. There was a strong impetus in the committee to have this bill that uh, Chairman Murkowski has been uh, working on be nonpartisan and, and uh, you know, t- keep the controversial things out of it. Um, so, we, you know, we had to we had to do the best we could to get in what we could. But I, I, I think, and, and I'm not opposed to net metering. I think net metering, as you said, is a blunt instrument, and the, the true measure is a more, more subtle one. And I don't think, frankly, we can ignore, those of us who are advocates for the development of these technologies, we can ignore the, the argument that uh, the grid cost is a kind of fixed cost, and uh, if you simply uh, let people... Uh, escape that charge, and yet the grid is there as their backup, uh, that is shifting a cost to other consumers who, for whatever reason, don't avail themselves of, let's say, solar on their roof. So we've got to, there are costs and benefits, and I just want to be sure that the the, uh, the fees, uh, or the, the, the backup charge, whatever you want to call it, uh, bear some resemblance to the, to the real, eco- to the economic realities of, this, of the situation. Your bill was introduced as uh, Senator Murkowski asked senators to introduce a variety of energy bills in order to craft some sort of comprehensive bill that has moved forward under her leadership. What are your colleagues thinking about what's in this energy bill that uh, moved out of committee? Uh, There's a lot in there. As you said, you got pieces of your bill in there. Um, What's interesting to you in that bill? And is there anything in there that you don't like? And then how, how, how are your colleagues sort of thinking about these issues in terms of what they want to see in the bill? Well, there, there, there were a series of amendments that were proposed during the uh, markup on the bill that unfortunately pretty much went down party lines, uh, which I think was too bad uh, uh, in terms of things that are in the bill. There's a provision in the bill, for example, on, uh, on export permits for uh, LNG, uh, that reduces the or, or defines the uh, Department of Energy's uh, time for consideration after the FERC process to 45 days, uh, which doesn't seem like much. Except the Department of Energy came in and testified they could they could handle that. That 
That's essentially what they're doing now because they do a lot of the work uh, in a preliminary way, so they're they're ready to make their decision. I I had a uh, offered an amendment that uh, I feel very strongly about. I'm intending to offer it on the floor that uh, there should be no LNG export permits until the Department of Energy has studied uh, the effect of such uh, level of export on domestic gas prices. I just think it was it's completely crazy for us to, in effect, export a huge benefit to American consumers and particularly American manufacturing uh, by unlimited exports, which inevitably, if they are unlimited and reach uh, the levels that are being talked about, would you know couldn't help but affect domestic prices. And uh, that was defeated on a party line vote, which I think was very unfortunate. Uh, I just think it's common sense. I'm going to continue to press that. Shaheen Portman is in the bill pretty much intact, in which I think is a good thing. And uh, there are some other uh, provisions. There's a separate bill on uh, export of oil, uh, which uh, the, the, uh, the oil states are very much in favor of. And I understand that. I don't think uh, uh, I'm not categorically opposed to it, but I think it ought to be part of a, a kind of grand bargain where other pieces like extension of PTC and ITC or uh, something on distributed energy that there's a quid pro quo. Yeah. So, so yeah. has anyone proposed anything like that? I know that a lot of people would like to see Keystone XL going forward. They'd like to see the oil export ban lifted. Many people have talked about some sort of compromise where you would extend the PTC and ITC for a long period of time, or if not permanently, like the White House wants to see. What, what kind of uh, compromises have you seen bandied about? Well, the, the wild card are the six or eight Democrats who represent states with extensive fossil fuel interests and whether uh, they are willing to uh, hold out for uh, some kind of uh, compromise on this issue. Uh, and and I don't really know the answer to that, uh, but that's that's the that's the question. I'll tell you an interesting story about Keystone that I frankly I'm still scratching my head over. Uh, as you know, uh, everybody once the, once the Republicans took control of the Senate in November, uh, everybody could predict exactly what was going to happen with Keystone uh, down to the minute and the vote. It was going to uh, was probably going to be sustained, and and you know you knew we knew that in November, so. We went through January and part of February on that issue. That's exactly what happened. But here's the interesting thing. They needed something like four Democratic votes to override the veto. And not that I was necessarily uh, out there advertising, uh, you know, that I was gettable. But, you know, I was interested in, okay, if this is so important to you, what are the other what what are you willing to do? Uh, on an environmental issue or on a major uh, energy issue uh, to, to to do a bargain, nobody ever asked, uh, which really surprised me. It was like, if you know you're going to lose this vote, why why wasn't somebody saying, well, let's how can we find a compromise here that will allow us to achieve what we were told was a major policy uh, priority? It was it was it was very odd. So. The question on the on the oil exports, which uh, certainly uh, is very desired by a lot of uh, senators, is whether, as I said, those uh, fossil fuel state Democrats 
uh, are willing to join forces with other Democrats uh, and independents, and like me and Bernie Sanders, and say, okay, we're, we're, we want to we want to see some environmental or energy uh, uh, legislation to be part of this bargain. And frankly, I just don't know whether that's going to happen. Yeah, Jigger wanted me to ask you something, Senator, uh, which is interesting because I wor- I've worked in Washington D.C. for thirty some years, and I understand that you know when Senators Murkowski and Cantwell can agree to something that this is a huge, huge deal, even if it isn't everything that that we would all want in it. It is it's movement that we haven't seen before, and I'm I'm always really excited about almost any little thing that can happen. So I always think of those as big. But Jigger said, "Hey, can America have any big ideas? Can we?" in essence, put forward any kind of big policy. Um, he does, I, I think of the clean power plan that way, but I would love to hear your view on, you know, as you sit in the Senate, what are the big things that we can get done as a country in energy and clean energy specifically? I, I think that's a really good question. And it's a question more broad than, than just energy. It's a question of, of anything. I I've come to to realize in my vast experience in the Senate, which consists of two and a half years, that there are really three levels of legislation in terms of what we can do. Uh, One are the big, bold, uh, uh, major controversial national issues, immigration, gun control, and I would probably put fundamental change in energy policy into that category. And that's very difficult. I mean, let's face it, that's where we just can't, we can't make it happen. Um, and uh, the, the votes just aren't there. And Congress is, in fact, gridlocked. On the other hand, there is a second level of legislation. And I would put uh, the Murkowski-Cantwell bill in this category that's important and significant that can get done on a bipartisan basis. For example, a month ago, we got a whole a, 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 a rewrite of the uh, Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which has been stalled for about 10 years. Went through 22 to nothing in the committee uh, and uh, passed the Senate. I can't remember. Got 70, 78 or 80 something votes, uh, and that got done. Uh, and it's important. We rewrote the whole veterans law a year ago on a bipartisan basis. And then there's a third level of very small bills that aren't controversial at all that are getting moving through all the time that get very little attention. So uh, I think the answer to Jigger's question is if it's big and bold. Uh, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a confluence of people and issues and, and, uh, and uh, the public and, uh, uh, you know, the, the politics being in the right moment. Uh, but there are things that can be done. And I, I certainly voted for the, uh, for the uh, Murkowski bill in committee, uh, even though it didn't have everything I wanted in it. But I think, you know, you've got you've to gotta play the hand that's dealt you. And, Right now, big and bold isn't necessarily going to be the answer, uh, a successful political answer. There has to be a lot of uh, education and, and thought. And, uh, you know, for example, on, on my bill, uh, the utilities are going to have to come around to the view that they, they, it might be better for them to, uh, work, uh, uh, to work jointly with people on this issue rather than simply uh, 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 lawyering up and fighting it everywhere. Angus King is an independent senator representing the state of Maine. He joined us uh, while on the road in Georgetown, Maine. Uh, He has thought long and hard about these issues, and we really appreciate you being on the show to share some of your thoughts. Thank you, Senator. Uh, It was a real pleasure. Thank you for your uh, very good questions, and uh, let's keep fighting the good fight. 
Yay. Thanks so much, Senator. It is that time of the show when we take a moment to hear about our sponsor, Renasola. We've got a lot of energy efficiency and solar experts who listen to this show. We know that because we've asked you, and we know you're all smart people. So put that intelligence to work and consider enhancing your project with Renasola LED lighting solutions. Renasola manufactures and distributes fully certified lighting projects for the residential, commercial, and utility sectors. Think about the added ROI you could realize by adding Renasola's LEDs to your projects. And think about the time you could save as well. Renasola has coast-to-coast warehouses and over 32 local sales reps across the U.S. To find out more, visit them on the web at renasola.us or call your local rep at 415-852-7421. And thanks to Renasola for sponsoring the show. Latin America is the fastest-growing region for solar in the world. At 2 gigawatts, it's still small compared to Europe, North America, and Asia, but it now hosts multiple up-and-coming markets that are attracting companies looking to grow internationally. Solar City is the latest solar major to push into the region, announcing plans to move into Mexico. It joins Sun Edison, First Solar, and Sun Power, which have been pretty active there, uh, in Chile and Brazil and in Mexico. So Adam has been following all these business moves and how these markets are changing. Uh, talking about these companies, I think, is a good way to, to frame the broader market opportunity. So let's let's talk about Solar City first. Why is Mexico attractive for a company like Solar City, which is, is mostly a residential company in this country? Obviously, they have a commercial business, dominant in residential, but they're moving into the commercial space in Mexico through acquisition. What's going on there? Yeah, so there's there's some nuance to why they chose CNI, which I'll I'll get into in a second. But I think the first point to make with Solar City is that they have a mandate for growth, uh, but as a company that's operating currently in the U.S. and has you know potentially some problems coming up with the ITC, uh, I mean it makes sense that they're looking elsewhere as a as a premise, right? Uh, and when you look at the different global markets that may be good candidates for them, there are actually very few that really rise to the top. I mean, you have some fast-growing distributed generation markets in in China and in India, but both of those are really, really difficult to get into as a foreign company, especially in the DG space. Um, you have the markets in Europe, which are kind of undergoing this transition from being premised on feed-in tariffs to starting to have more and more self-consumption. So those are in flux and, and have a lot of policy risk, which is not necessarily, solar. I think, something Solar City wants to sign up for again, although I do think that they will expand to one of those markets in the next year. Uh, and then when you look at the rest of the emerging markets, it's just a question of where is there the least risk and the highest reward. And I think that Mexico really is a standout candidate for meeting both of those criteria. So why is that? Do they have high electricity prices for in the commercial sector? Yeah. So the main so the main two things I would point to for CNI rather than residential is just has to do with the rate structures and also with consumption patterns and and I suppose also with uh, the consumer kind of off taker profiles. So when you look at CNI, you know rates in residential can be high, maybe up to twenty one cents per kilowatt hour, but there's only maybe a half a million customers who would fall into that bucket, and the rest of the customers have relatively low household consumption and they pay around five to six cents a kilowatt hour. Um, now, some of them do like kind of crest into the next consumption tier, uh, which is 18 cents a kilowatt hour. But those are kind of few, much, many like that's fewer clients and your total bill is not necessarily going to be super competitive for solar there. And you've got major um, credit issues in the residential sector, too, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, 40% of the economy is is run on cash, right? Which is just a totally different world than the one that I think we're used to thinking about with, with trying to crack into like the US market where we already have a pretty strong credit structure. And there's also very a lot fewer options for recourse when it comes to collateral recuperation uh, in, in the residential market. They, they, they provide kind of the consumer with a lot of power in that respect. So there's solar installers who would love to be putting systems on the roof if they could just get them back if the people don't pay. And even that can be a big problem. And, and I don't say any of that to disparage the residential segment because that's actually at the, up to this point has been the fastest growing portion of the market. And there's a ton of companies who are doing fantastic work. But I think my point is just that if you're solar city and you're looking to how can I go into this market and scale, residential is is kind of a lot more fragmented and there's a lot more complexity in it. Uh, whereas CNI has a few advantages. I mean, the the rates are a little bit more attractive. They're between nine cents at the low end and going up to 17 cents at the high end. Uh, you've got you know almost 4 million customers that account for about 170 gigawatt hours annually. So that's a huge ceiling in terms of, of what you could capture for your total available market. And, and they also just have better credit reporting to lean on. I mean, these are small businesses that have established relationships with banks. Uh, they have, um, you know, they have you, I think you have an easier time with the collateral recuperation issue. A lot of them are willing to buy projects uh, with kind of cash, uh, but they also have the kind of third-party ownership option. Uh, so it makes sense that when SolarCity is kind of looking into Mexico, that CNI is the first place that they go. Because I, I think I would agree that in terms of being a low-hanging fruit and scaling rapidly, which I think are the two things they would want, that the CNI space meets kind of meets the mark for them. And Adam, it strikes me that they're doing, the government is really wants to make this happen. So I reached out and shared with you something that Leonardo Beltran, who's the deputy minister for planning and energy transition of Mexico sent me where, you know, they're looking at by 2018, having 33% of renewables and a chunk of that is wind, like 20% of that is wind. So solar is a lesser percentage and yet it, it can benefit from all of the reforms the government is doing to try to make it easier for renewable companies to come in and develop renewables because of their of what they need to make up with on their energy deficit as they look to the future. And they really believe that this is going to increase economic growth and social inclusion as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that from a government standpoint, what they've done is they've created, they're, they're doing their best to create a more level playing field. And, and as they grow, that means that solar will catch kind of a larger share of this, of this newly kind of opening competitive marketplace. Uh, however, they actually haven't done a whole lot proactively to to help solar out, at least on the large scale side. Um, in the world of distributed generation, the main thing that they have done to help is has kind of been to leave it alone, like to leave in place the policies that they set a few years ago. Uh, and on kind of on the retail side of the meter and for distributed generation companies and and trying to promote more solar DG in Mexico, the big issue is actually the rates and the process by which the rates get set, which frankly, it's just very, very opaque up to this point. And often uh, there's some, I think, relatively legitimate concerns that it's politically motivated. Um, and that can create a lot of problems just because it creates uncertainty around rates and what people are expecting over the next 20 years when they're looking to sign a solar PPA. Um, but one thing I will say that's, you know, a positive for the industry is that after, you know, several months of successive rate declines leading up to an election, uh, the election happened and now rates are starting to go back up again uh, and probably starting to get a little bit closer to reflecting the cost of of generation in the country. And so uh, with every notch, those go closer towards being accurate. Um, solar gets a little bit more competitive. 
Let's talk about Sun Edison now. This is a company that has been very active in the region. I think you wrote that they account for one quarter of utility scale projects throughout uh, Latin American countries. Why is this region so important for feeding its international yield co, Terraform, Terraform Global? I mean, obviously it needs to feed the beast, so to speak. Sounds like there's a there's a huge pipeline there that they've both developed and that other local developers um, are working on that they could they could purchase and throw into the yield co. How important is this region for Sun Edison? It sounds like it's equally it's it's like one of these markets that you described earlier, and that it's pretty difficult to get into China. I know Sun Edison is active in India, but mm-hmm. they need a market with high growth uh, that's a little bit easier to get into. And so it sounds like Latin America is that market rather than something like China. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be learned. If you just, I did, you know, I got the transcript from the most recent earnings call, and I did a quick word count. And, you know, the CEO spent about a third of his time talking about Latin America, which is pretty remarkable when you think you about put together one of those word clouds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, and like a pie chart of how much he spent yeah, that's right. talking about Latin America. There's your next research report. Right, exactly. The headline. Um, but, you know, I mean, but it's remarkable given what you said at the beginning, that it's it's 4% of the, the market regionally is only 4% of the global market, but it's getting a third of of, you know, the real estate on an earnings call. And I think the reason is, is because sometimes those percentages don't tell the whole story. Uh, you know, that 4% of the global market may be the most attractive 4% for a company who's in the position that Sun Edison is. And I think that that's probably true. You know, I mean, when you look at their track record over the last six, seven months, you know, they they bought solar from Actis in Honduras. Um, they've bought, you know, they've gotten a larger stake in Renova uh, in Brazil and are developing a bunch of large projects there. They acquired Latin America Power and, and now have this hydro portfolio. And um, Latin America Power, you know, has a lot of renewables that they're developing. And and then they've, you know, they also acquired a project from SolarPak. Uh, and they have, and that's just in addition to, you know, they have 300 megawatts operational already and then another 800 megawatts in development. So this is a market that their company is taking very, very seriously. Uh, and the growth potential is is huge. I mean, there's 27 gigawatts of projects that are in some stage of development region-wide. And 90% of that is in, you know, Chile, Mexico, and Brazil, which are three markets that they already have a pretty strong foothold in. Um, you know, and I think overall, like when you look at what this means for their for their yield co and what this means for their growth strategy, it's also, you know, worth saying that other than currency risk, which is a huge problem at the moment in Latin America, power development is a pretty strong game to be in. You know, I mean, drought and a lot of these concerns about resource diversification have spurred auctions. And so Sun Edison has been really actively involved in these auctions, which are procuring large scale power plants with long term PPAs with bankable off takers. I mean, that's kind of the dream scenario, right, for their yield co. So. Uh, so anyways, you know, I, that's a lot, those are a lot of numbers in there, but I think that they, they paint a picture of this kind of rapidly growing market, uh, that, you know, is 80% plus utility scale. Um, and that's a, that's a great place for Sun Edison to be competitive. So who are these other developers? Are they mostly local developers? How big are they compared to some of the, um, you know, biggest American and European developers that, that we're talking about here. And is, is the project pipeline mostly being developed by local players and then bought up by bigger companies or fully executed by these local companies? Just just help us understand the ecosystem of companies that are building and, and operating these projects. Yeah, that I mean, that provides some pretty interesting insight, I think, into into 
this where the market is at currently. Because if you look at the top ten pipeline, uh, you know the the top ten developers just in terms of megawatts in their pipeline, it's actually split uh, between probably three kinds of players. I mean, you've got you know your tier one super strong. Uh, internationally recognized developers, you know, Sun Edison and L Green Power is is huge. Uh, you know, you've got so you've got those kinds of companies who have uh, who take up a few spots. Then you have a few spots actually at the very top of the list that are developers who have kind of capitalized on on the low threshold for for early project development in countries like Mexico and, and Chile to develop huge like gigawatt sized pipelines, even though those companies themselves don't have a long track record. And uh, for companies like Sun Edison, who are kind of approaching those companies, it's really about sorting through, you know, tens of 10, 20 projects to find one that has uh, kind of some good, meet some of its criteria. And and frankly, I think a lot of times those are just, those developers are just doing that to kind of uh, secure the land rights near particular nodes that are very attractive. So you've got that kind of a developer, like a highly opportunistic, not necessarily solar savvy local player. And then you've got a third kind of player who I find really interesting, which is um, smaller local developers who have relatively sizable pipelines at this point, but highly, highly valued pipelines. Uh, And those are the kinds of people who we've seen Sun Edison kind of directly go after and acquire projects from and, you know, the Enel Green Powers of the world and the other kind of top tier companies who are active in this region, you know, Pattern and um, and so on. I mean, that's the kind of people who they're really going after, I think, a lot of times. And then we have you chasing these companies down with your right. notebook. And <laughs> right. So, Adam, I know AES has done in Chile some energy storage projects um, collated co-located with their coal production plants. And I just wonder, given what you're saying um, about kind of these spikes, how you think energy storage might play? Yeah, it, it definitely could play. And, and you know, it was actually really interesting because in the last auction, um, you know, Abengoa uh, and, and uh, you know, paired up some of their PV projects with CSP and they're developing these, you know, 200 plus megawatt projects that are partially CSP, kind of for the reason that you're talking about to take advantage of those Dynamics, you know, Enel uh, paired in wind so that they could offset, uh, you know, demand at night. Um, Sun Edison has talked about pairing up PV with hydro or, or with storage and, and kind of offering a, a product into the market that provides 24-hour power. Um, yeah, I mean, there definitely are those opportunities. I think it, what makes it difficult is that a lot of times these price signals are so short-lived, right? You get really, really high prices and that attracts a lot of development. But then the prices go back down because you have a lot of new capacity and a lot of new generation on the grid. And so, you know, you've got people developing projects based on a price signal that may last a few months and then they have to hold on to that project for the next 30 years. And that's kind of where storage, I think, may have a little bit more of an advantage because it can pop up at different times of the day when and where it's useful and hopefully smooth out that price curve a little bit. Um, but it, you know, it does have to deal with those dynamics of you're you're making a thirty year investment based on a one month price signal or a one day price signal. So I like you, and I'm going to give you a chance to wrap up here with a shameless plug of what you've been working on in Mexico. All right, are you ready? This is my my two sentence shameless plug on what it, what GTM is doing in this space. So you know, first of all, all the numbers that we're throwing out here in this portion of the conversation are coming from the report that I do every quarter, which is the Latin America. PV playbook, uh, and that covers all of the solar development in the region, and you know is just the best 
best thing, the best thing on the market, although I may have a little bit of bias about that. The second thing, though, and this is, I think, the more exciting one for our listeners, is that for those of you who are going to be sitting around in January, wherever you are, um, feeling cold, uh, GTM is doing its first international uh, summit down in Mexico City at the end of January, uh, and it's going to be specifically focused on solar development in the region. Uh, the timing is great because the energy reform process that everyone's been talking about for years will finally be complete, and so there'll be some really interesting things to talk about. And if you're looking for uh, a trip, you know, in the in those cold winter months, uh, I don't think you can do much better than coming on down to Mexico. So if you're interested, uh, there's information up about it on the Green Tech Media events page, uh, and you know, there's plenty more details to be coming soon. So. Reach out if you have any questions about that. It's perfect timing. You know, you're cold in January. You've been with your family for a month. Your company's travel budget has just been renewed. It's the perfect storm. Check out. Are you are you, are you pandering to try to come down to Mexico? Yeah, with the, yeah. The crew? A, I'm actually talking, speaking for myself here. Yeah, I'm looking for the energy gang to be doing a show. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> remote hosting. All right, I'll see. I'll see what I can do as long as you don't cut my plug out. We just have to do it in Spanish. <laughs> Our last topic deals with race, political contributions, and President Obama's carbon regulations. Last week, the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting wrote a piece on the National Black Chamber of Commerce, an organization that has been highly critical of pollution rules and pro-clean energy policies. The article detailed the millions of dollars in funding that the NBCC gets from fossil fuel groups while spreading fears about how blacks will face dire economic consequences from the new clean power plan. Proponents of the new climate rule say this is a cynical attempt by fossil fuel companies to exploit minority communities. The NBCC has long defended its stance and funding sources, saying that it is genuinely concerned about the disproportionate economic impact on blacks. Um, Catherine, this recent investigation of funding sources is new. Um, so we, we did get some more details on the organizations that are backing the National Black Chamber of Commerce. Um, but it, it has been railing on pollution and climate regulations for decades. So what do we know about this organization and sort of the history and how it's approached pollution rules? Well, I'm not an expert on this, but um, Harry and Kay Alford founded it in 1993. And it really was about business and it's about being pro-business. And if you look at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, that's exactly what they do too. They are trying to give people business opportunities. And the Alfords specifically were trying to give African-Americans business opportunities. And so it was all structured in that way. And so all of the fundraising they've done has been pro-business. And that is not necessarily pro-clean energy. <laughs> um, and they have been taking a, you know, a million dollars since 1998 from ExxonMobil. And they're, they're budgeted about a million dollars a year. They take a lot of money from the Koch brothers um, and other fossil groups. And a lot of it is ostensibly for workforce development issues to try to get, um, you know, folks who come out of incarceration, good jobs and um, minorities involved in that workforce. But I mean, the reality is they are going to also be taking positions that are pro fossil fuel. Um, and so, you know, just to differentiate them a little bit, there's also a U.S. Black Chambers of Commerce, which is 
it takes the opposite view. Confusing, so, yes. Yes, it's very <laughs> confusing. So they are very pro the Clean Power Plan. And then the NAACP has a very strong support of the Clean Power Plan um, because, you know, people, African-Americans and those, you know, racial and ethnic minorities pay a much greater price in living in areas that are polluted than Caucasian-Americans do. And it's just the, the numbers really show that. And so the Clean Power Plan really um, will help those communities more than hurt it in the end. And I, I think that's the position that the NAACP and the U.S. Black Chambers is taking as opposed to the National Black Chamber of Commerce. Right. And I think the numbers are pretty telling here. 68% of African-Americans live within 30 miles of a power plant. Um, so black communities, people of color, are disproportionately impacted and, and vulnerable to power plant emissions. Uh, in 2014, the University of Minnesota found that non-whites are exposed to 40% more nitrogen dioxide pollution from cars and power plants than whites. And the numbers are alarmingly high from other, for other pollutants, considering that minorities, again, are disproportionately living near highways, near toxic sites, and landfills. Um, so this organization has been arguing against similar rules to the Clean Power Plan over the years. And, and, and President Obama actually addressed this sort of head on when he introduced the plan earlier this month. Um, he said, even more cynical, we've got critics of this plan who are actually claiming it will harm minority and low income communities, even though climate change hurts those Americans the most who are the most vulnerable. So he did take this head on and really tries to address these misconceptions. And I think the numbers are, are very telling here. Yeah, it's also interesting. I mean, you know, they were reading through some of the the background on this group that, you know, I mean, I thought it was pretty gutsy to call, for example, the the solar amendment. They talked about it being like a shady solar amendment and like have that kind of rhetoric when there's it's a two it's a two person chamber, you know, which is like the smallest possible chamber that I think you're allowed you can have. You know, they have two people on the payroll. Uh, and a million plus in, in contributions from big business. It just seems like there's no way that you can look at the background of this organization and feel like it accurately reflects uh, any kind of kind of popular opinion here. And you know the the stat that's that jumped out to me from that uh, NAACP study was also that you know African American children were five times more likely to enter the hospital uh, with asthma and three times more likely to die from it. Uh, and that there's an obvious kind of bias when they were reviewing where those power plants were located that, you know, when even just putting aside where the power plants are, when you look at specifically the ones that are failing environmental standards, that the the income, the average income there was about 17.5,000 per year and 53% of those people were were minorities. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, the, I, I just looking at the numbers, there's no way to kind of stack that up and say that these people represent the the interests, the best interests of that community. Yeah, and the danger is that they get a seat at the table at regulatory proceedings. So that's where the danger comes in, is that is that this guy will testify in a proceeding and say how it's hurting the community when it is absolutely false, and he's 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 supporting the opposite side. Yeah, so just to make one more point, you know, that specifically the kind of the lever that they say is being pulled in order to negatively impact low-income communities is retail rates. And, you know, I feel like that is a also a particularly dishonest argument in the context of, of kind of increasing the amount of clean energy that's on the grid, not just because clean energy has a kind of a proven effect on lowering wholesale rates, uh, which has happened everywhere that it's been deployed across the globe, but also because 
On the retail side of the meter, you know, I think it ignores the fact that consumers are the ones who shoulder the risk of fuel volatility. So, you know, for the proponents of building out more and more gas infrastructure, uh, they're willing to kind of gamble on the fact that gas prices will go up uh, or they don't really care about whether or not gas prices will go up because the people who will be paying those costs are ratepayers. Uh, and that kind of puts it in stark contrast with clean energy investments, where once you pay your fixed capital cost for installing, you know, those clean energy generation systems, that's it. You know, there's, that's the end of the risk. Uh, so, of course, I feel like folks are willing to gamble with other people's money. But it's just that's why I feel like the retail rate argument is just particularly dishonest, because it really just ignores the amount of risk that they're willing to shovel onto consumers by continuing to rely on fossil fuel. I think that's a uh, good way to finish the segment. And since you are our, our guest this week, Adam, I think you can tell us something we don't know first off. And I, I, the, the quality of, the, of your line is degrading a little bit, so sorry to listeners, but uh, you can just go on ahead. All right, I've got two. So the first one is about my favorite clean energy nonprofit, which is the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. Uh, for those of you who have been listeners of the show, uh, the Clean Energy Leadership Institute has gotten a lot of love here. And uh, if you're interested in finding out more, there's a fantastic profile up in Forbes from Lindsay Gilpin. So I'd encourage you to read that to find out a little bit more about what uh, is always being talked about on this show. The second one is about China, which I think is always interesting to discuss because of its kind of hybrid model between central planning and capitalism. Uh, and just to point out that this is also taking place in the electricity sector, you know, the China State Council has offered up some reforms for creating a competitive wholesale electricity market uh, this past March, uh, which would be pretty monumental uh, in that it would break up uh, the state grid's virtual monopoly by allowing competitive generation and distribution and also encouraging more power trading between different regions in China. Uh, for those of you who've been following this issue, you know, there's a lot of interesting stories out lately about solar curtailment, you know, almost 10% of solar was curtailed in the first half of the year and, you know, low growth in different provinces in China. And, uh, and I would point people towards this is a really great article that was written back in 2007 by Richard Lester and Edward Steinfeld in, uh, in the Harvard Asia Pacific Review about the way that clean energy business actually, or the way that power generation business actually gets done in China and how local officials need to meet their economic growth goals, but they also control the development bank loans and they also control the municipal equity investments and they also control the construction permits and, uh, and how, and just to give kind of a picture of how China is changing so rapidly and why it's running into so many of the problems that it's been running into up to this point. So anyways, there's a, there's a dense amount of, of information to kind of read into, but I would encourage everyone to look into uh, China's kind of transition to a competitive electricity market and also to read up on, on the history of how the power sector has kind of evolved uh, over the last 10, 20 years. I would love to know what subset of our listeners are specifically following China's electricity modernization and, and grid rules. <laughs> Well, and can I even just like one stat that just blew my mind from that was that up to 110 gigawatts of their grid is illegal. Like it's it's un uh, it was unplanned. It's kind of hidden away. It's not on the record anywhere. 110 gigawatts has been done through these kind of local back channels, which is just amazing. That's an amazing kind of statistic to be thinking about when you're trying to wonder what should I make of electricity market data coming out of China, Catherine. Tell us something we do not know. 
Yeah, I'm going to talk about something highly legal. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm in Crossbury Common at Sterling College, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about this amazing institution. It started in 1958 as a prep school, and it evolved to a one-year undergrad program that my husband actually went to for a year between high school and college. And now it's a four-year, and for 30 years has been a four-year undergraduate program, about 120 students and then 50 continuing education students. And it's an amazing place because it is it is the leading voice for environmental stewardship. They were the first in Vermont and the third college nationwide to divest of fossil fuels. Um, by 2018, they'll be 100% renewable. They have, they're installing 10 new solar trackers this year alone. As they told me, they don't have a director of sustainability because everyone is a director of sustainability. They just build in environmental stewardship to every single thing they do. Um, and they build, you know, it's a liberal arts education, but it's all about ecology and sustainable agriculture. And it is an amazing place. Um, Matthew Durr is the president, and he hosted us last night for a wonderful meal that was all picked from the gardens here. Um, because it, it doesn't just have a farm, it is a farm. Uh, so I just wanted to give a pitch for Sterling College. It's very special, and they were very kind to host me. Yeah, like I said in the beginning, I almost went there. I ended up going to school for journalism instead, but a uh, very attractive place, both for their programs and the, lands- the surrounding landscape. Yeah, it truly is. The The mountains are beautiful here. There's a ton to do winter and summer. I know it gets very cold here, but right now it's beautiful. <laughs> Um, so mine was sort of a surprise this week. I, I was leafing through my many, many tabs in uh, Chrome, and uh, I came upon a news story that uh, yesterday, I think it was, George Soros, the famous Hungarian billionaire, has made an investment, a $2 million investment in Peabody Energy and Arch Coal, these struggling coal companies. As we talked about on the show recently, There have been around 40 companies that have declared bankruptcy in the last few years. And according to Citigroup, a report that just came out in the last week, the market cap of publicly listed coal companies has fallen by two-thirds. So an opportunistic buy uh, for George Soros. But it's just very odd for this guy who has dedicated millions to climate initiatives and who called coal a lethal bullet. You know, why would he invest in something like this? I, I don't have an answer, but clearly money talks. And we have, of course, seen people like Tom Steyer make major investments in fossil fuels and slowly unwind those investments. Uh, but I just thought it was very odd that a guy like George Soros would make a multi-million dollar investment in these struggling coal companies. Do you think he's buying it to just leave it in the ground? I don't know. That's what some have speculated. It yeah. seems like such a small investment. Although when you consider how much value these companies have lost, maybe $2 million goes a lot, lo- a lot further than I think. All right, we're going to call it at that, folks. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola. You can find the company's LED lights, solar modules, and much more at renasola.us. You can find all our shows. I think this is number 98 um, at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. We are on iTunes, we are on Stitcher, we are on SoundCloud. Thank you so much to those of you who write reviews for us on those platforms. It is so helpful for um, getting other people to find us. iTunes is, of course, our biggest distributor, so if you use iTunes, please write us a review. We really appreciate it. Uh, and, you know, you can go to greentechmedia.com podcast to find links to stories that we talked about. 
Adam James, thanks uh, for joining us and filling in this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Look, looking forward to coming on again. Catherine, enjoy your time in Vermont and over in New York in the Adirondacks. I am so jealous. <laughs> thanks, I will. It's awesome. It'll be a good recharge. With Catherine Hamilton and Adam James, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.